The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the following program belong solely to the host and guest and do not necessarily reflect those of this radio station, our parent company, advertisers, or affiliates. Welcome to Sharing Our Stories. We share stories of support for individuals in recovery from substance misuse and mental health-related issues. There are numerous pathways to recovery, and each week we welcome powerful leaders and role models who have struggled in drug and or alcohol addiction, have found a pathway to recovery, and who thrive as positive community members with an ongoing vision of success. Join us as we share our experiences, strength, and hope. When the world says, give up, hope whispers. Try it one more time. Good morning, Mile High, and welcome back to sharing our stories here on Jammin' 1015 and Flow 1071. And uh, my name is Slim, along with from Tribe Recovery Homes, Tomas Hernandez. Good morning, Tomas. Good morning. How is everybody doing this morning? Man, wishing everybody the best on a Sunday morning. Uh, Malhai, if you're just tuning in this morning and you've never checked us out before, each Sunday morning right here on your radio, we do sharing our stories. And what this program is, is uh, about addiction and recovery. And we believe that sharing stories about recovery can help people out there who are suffering an addiction find their pathway to recovery. There are a lot of pathways to recovery. There is no one right way to do it. I want to thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for checking in. And we're going to have a really, really great guest on in, in just a moment. But before we get started, I want to thank Tomas and Tribe Recovery Homes for their sponsorship of this program. And Tomas, can you tell everybody a little bit about what it is that Tribe Recovery Homes does and, and why you're such an important part of this Mile High community? Yeah, everybody. Basically, Tribe Recovery Homes is a grassroots nonprofit organization. What we got going is partnered with a few community partners like our guest today from Second Chance Center. We tackle addiction, mental health, and recovery plans for the reentry community that comes in and out of city, county, and state judicial system. So with that being said, look us up at www.triberecoveryhomes.com and you can see what we're more about. We are the sponsors and we're trying to showcase a lot of people like this Man, I can't wait to hear this story. We'll be about to hear it's a it's going to be an amazing one. Um, just want to give a shout out to Second Chance Center and Taj and, and all the good people over there, Khalil and Hassan and all those beautiful case managers like Wanda, all those uh, great boots on the ground people that are moving and shaking every day. Yeah, stay tuned for this one. So uh, this morning, our guest is from Second Chance Center. His name is Taj Ashahid. Did I say that correctly? Perfect. 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 That's what I like to hear. Perfect. I like when I nail it. Just boom, boom, home run. Um, Taj Ashahid is our guest this morning. He is from Baltimore, Maryland, Laurel, Maryland, because I, I got a little, I got some family out in Laurel, but he now calls the Mile High City home. So we want to thank him for coming in this morning. And we turn it over to our guest here on Sharing Our Stories, Taj Ashahid. Hey, good morning, uh, first of all. And I just want to express my gratitude for uh, you guys. Uh, having me on uh, on your show and, and being able to share my story as well. So um, where to start? It's always interesting when you have to talk about your own story and where, where exactly do you start? But I think really in context of, of talking to you and, the, and, and to Tomas and, and about especially um, tribe recovery. Um, I, so I work with uh, the Second Chance Center. I'm the in-reach programs manager there. And so the bulk of what I do is related to the Colorado Department of Corrections. Um, our organization is a reentry organization. Um, and so we provide um, really top to bottom services to people who are formerly incarcerated and especially are transitioning out of prison or jail uh, to, to life, really. Um, and so um, we provide everything from mentoring and mental health um, support, um, recovery and substance abuse uh, support, um, housing uh, and employment, all of those needs that people who are leaving um, a, a life of, of incarceration, whether it's been years or just months or weeks, um, to facing the challenge of what we call reentry. Um I think from a from a personal standpoint that this is what my life is now is is um, helping people make that transition. Uh, our key, you know, at the Second Chance Center is that the the part of the transition we want our people to embrace is is that success and fulfillment. Um, and then what 
what success and fulfillment really look like. Um, and, and I think it varies depending on who you talk to. But what it doesn't look like is really what our ultimate mission is. And that is um, really encompassed kind of in this in this mantra of never going back. Um, so that that's really kind of what what really tempers what I do like on a day to day basis. Um, my job, I love it. Um, it's fulfilling for myself personally. Um, and it's purposeful, um, which is, I think what a lot of people are always trying to search for, um, just in life in general. And so, um, it, it meets sort of all those criteria for myself personally. Um, I, you know, I don't have in my own life and experience, I don't have, uh, really uh, an extensive issue with substance abuse or recovery. I've never um, really used drugs or really drank alcohol, but my, but my life (laughs) intervened into a lot of that. Um, I grew up, as you mentioned, I grew up uh, in Maryland. I'm I'm, I'm an Air Force brat. So my father, uh, we lived in several places in the country growing up. Um, I was, uh, adopted. I was born in Texas, El Paso, Texas. And, um, and I'm laughing at Tomas because of the jokes that the inside jokes that we've been talking about. <laughs> so, uh, but that's a whole other story. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I was born in El Paso. Uh, and I immediately moved because my, my father's career in the Air Force, he was a career Air Force, uh, retired as a lieutenant colonel, was an electrical engineer and also, um, an intelligence, um, uh, chief. Um, worked for the NSA and that's what led us to Maryland because uh, he worked at Fort Meade. Um, so I grew up um, just outside of the, in the DC area. Um, and then I lived in a couple other places. Like I, I ended up moving back to Texas and lived several years there. But I lived in Alabama, in Alabama. I lived in California, but the bulk of my years were um, in Maryland. Uh, I moved uh, to Colorado in 1987. So it was my senior year, um, that I moved here and I went to Arapahoe High out in, uh, Littleton. We lived in, in Centennial before it was called Centennial. Um, and so it was like South, South Littleton. And, um, but I, you know, I moved here kind of still, um, really marked by my upbringing, especially on the East Coast. And I spent my, my formative years like really running the streets. Um, even though like really like my parents did their their they did the most to give me a pretty good upbringing. I always lived in the suburbs, to be honest. Um, but as growing up, though, my friends were all from the hood and from projects and and I attached myself to them. And so I, I spent a lot of time in places that my parents had no idea uh, I was at, I mean, you know, I grew up back where you would be gone all day. Your parents didn't know where you were. They just hoped that the police never called. <laughs> so, uh, and that's how I grew up. I, 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 um, and so I spent a lot of time running with, uh, my friends, um, and, and even family that were, um, in, in really pretty, you know, hard to live places. Um, DC, uh, I was back there a, a lot in the city, um, right down the street from the white house in the projects. Um, I grew my, my summertime I spent, so my summer vacation, I tell people all the time, I, I vacation in Newark, New Jersey. And so you can only imagine like summer in the, in Maryland and then, or, you know, wintertime in Maryland and then summertime really running the streets of brick city. I learned how to, um, steal cars. I learned how to fight. Uh, and I learned, um, just how to be a hoodlum. So I, I came to Colorado and I just ran amok. Um, as a as a 17 year old as as a senior in high school and it caught up with me very very quickly because before I graduated um, I was basically in jail um, in and um, in jail for robbery and assault and I turned 18 in jail I got sentenced to uh, juvenile prison so I turned 19 there and I got out uh, 19. Uh, a hoodlum. I was a gang member. I was put on. Um, I was put on uh, while I was, you know, locked down, and I got out uh, right, kind of back into that uh, life and atmosphere. 
And before I turned, so I was 19 years old, and, be, and right before I turned 20, um, I committed uh, a carjacking and, a, and an assault and a high-speed chase be- through three counties. And the when I woke up, because uh, I, I crashed, went through the windshield, hit a brick wall, and woke up in the hospital, and I was facing 70, 76 years in prison. And I copped the plea for 16. And so uh, I went to prison and I spent um, about eight years, almost eight years in prison. Um, So my formative years were there. And so I never, you know, I I made the very quick decision in terms of how I was going to live my life while I was in prison, um, you know, in my early 20s. And I, um, I was really never much, you know, coming back to the issue of substance abuse, I, I was never really much, even much of a drinker, even when I was, you know, running the streets as a teenager, as a kid. Um, and I never, I smoked weed one time uh, and I did that because I was in jail and I was bored. And so it never became a thing for me. <clears throat> I learned very quickly I could just sell it to other inmates and make a lot of money. And so uh, <laughs> the business part of it is the part I got caught up in. But um, I never, I never really used and, and, and drank. Um, I, I, uh, I got drunk one time and got really, really sick. And, and my brain, you know, clicked and said, "I don't ever really want to feel like that." So I just quit, you know, quit doing that. Re- really. Um, and so I never really got into it. Um, and then while I was in prison uh, in my early 20, at 23, I, I converted to Islam. And that lifestyle is an abstinent lifestyle. And so, but it was an easy transition for me. I, again, I, I never really drank. Prison, I, I didn't have, there. you know, you have access to dr- drinking, to alcohol, you make it. I, I made it. I was kind of a mad scientist, so I made pretty good uh, prison alcohol and it was, you know, uh, it sold out uh, pretty fast because um, I had this scientific method on how I did it. I won't reveal the secrets, but because um, it's patented. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, again, it was the business. It was the business part because, look, I was I was in prison as a young kid. My parents really separated from me in terms of support and because they really had no idea. I mean, I, it was one day they, the police called them and said, hey, we got your son. And that was it for them. And so I, I didn't have really that family support. And so I really had to hustle. Um, so I was in prison hustling. And and so selling, I sold, you know, I, I had people that got the weed in and I they gave it to me to sell it because I didn't use it. So they had pure profit. <laughs> you know, there was no, I never dipped and had to scrape anything. And so um, I, you know, I, I, I sort of approached it from that standpoint. Um when I when I got out, <clears throat> when I got out, even from juvenile, that was where I really confronted like a lot of the the lifestyle um, around drug use, especially in my community, um, and and the prolific sort of um, epidemic of crack, and it really struck me um, because I saw people at their worst because of this 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 drug this this and and this addiction, and it scared me. Um, it, it tempered. Um, where I didn't have an interest um, to even sell it then. I, I sold it in, pr- I, I sold weed in prison because that was my hustle. But on the streets, it was it was just something I, I, I really stayed away from because I saw what it did to people. And it really, it really, um, it really struck me. Um, I saw people just in really horrible conditions and their behavior, um, it scared it scared the hell out of me. Um, I growing growing up in Maryland. One of my one of my personal heroes that I actually met um, several times was Len Bias, and when he died um, just from using cocaine, um, that that for me was it. I, I knew um, that that was something that I would you know do my best to shy away from just because what it did to him so fast and so immediate. And and I and I kind of saw you know the effect. I mean, here was a guy who uh, would have been probably better than Michael Jordan uh, in the league, and it, that life never materialized. And it and it struck me in terms of the choices that I made, sort of for myself, and, and trying to create my own personal um, sense of integrity and behavior. Um, 
but I struggled because again, I was a thug and I was robbing people. So that was my hustle. I, I didn't, I didn't want to sell people drugs, but I didn't have a problem stealing from people and, and robbing them. And so I had to struggle sort of with that, that immorality and, 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 um, and, and that, you know, those decisions that I made that again, before I knew it, I was on my way to a prison career. Um, but again, I, I made choices while I was there. Uh, my conversion was a tipping point um, that reverberates to this day in my life. Um, and it was an easy transition in terms of some of the own, my own personal integrity um, at the time. Even though I was in prison, I really tried to exhibit um, behavior that people found trustworthy. Um, and, and it was a survival mechanism for me too, because I felt like the, the more that I engaged in behavior that was kind of criminal and, and, and really squirrely and distrustful, I was, I was putting myself in, 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 in physical jeopardy. And so it was just easier for me to just kind of live a life where I didn't have to make any, any of those types of decisions. And then I didn't get caught up in any of, any of the drama uh, and, and then, you know, becoming Muslim just became more and more and more of a no brainer. And it, and it really tailored a lot of my behavior. Um, and I think it opened up the, a lot of doors for me to get out of prison where I didn't have to serve the bulk of my sentence. So I, after just under eight years, um, I went home uh, and I was uh, married right before I got out. So I, I got out in 1996. Um, and. By that time, I was married, and I had like uh, my my wife had uh, several stepchildren, and so I had a family, and I fell immediately into a job because of, look, I, I had to take care of my responsibilities. So I was like, as soon as I get out, I'm going to go find a job. I, I got uh, hit the pavement. I uh, got this job that was really just a call center job doing public opinion surveys, which meant because I didn't like want to do sales or anything like that, and I, I really didn't have any job skills. I mean, I. I, uh, I I learned a little bit of computers while I was in prison, but outside of that, I really didn't have any skills whatsoever. So I, I but I didn't want to do construction or anything like that. Um, so I, I, you know, I my goal was to get a job, pay my bills and, and eventually go to school and try to put myself in a position where I, you know, I could get into some sort of career. Although, you know, to be honest, I didn't know what it was going to be. So I took this call center job. But it was just one of those situations where it was like the perfect situation at the perfect time. The the company that I worked for was a a new company that was a satellite of an office in 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 uh, New York, and they wanted to open up an office specifically to do the public opinion surveys for President Clinton. That was that was the only reason why that job was even there, and their goal was to hire as many people as possible and conduct this this research with this new methodology that the people who own the company had uh, created and wanted to test out. And um, so they were desperate to hire as many people as possible, which explained why they would hire somebody fresh out of prison. Uh, I was still in the halfway house, actually. And um, they hired me uh, with no, you know, no job experience. But I, you know, I, I, I had a particular demeanor and I showed up a certain way that I think they felt they felt confident about in terms of giving me a chance. Um, and I, I took that chance and I, I did my job pretty well. And it turned into a very quick um, promotions. I went, became a, a manager, a project manager very quickly, uh, a personnel manager very quickly. And, and then, uh, you know, the vice president of the company came and met me and decided to give me just crazy opportunity to run all of the operations. And, um, I took that opportunity and I ran with it. And before I knew it, uh, I was in charge of President Clinton's uh, market research. And, you know, I I saw the writing on the wall. I knew that these type of opportunities were rare. And um, so for myself, I knew it was uh, definitive. It was life defining for me. And again, it it answered a lot of the questions of what I'm going to do to pay my bills, how I'm going to support my family. Um, I had a brand new baby that was impending. <laughs> my, my baby was born. My daughter was born in the beginning of 97. And this is the election season. So this is November, you know, October, November of 1996. And all of these things just really fell 
um, <clears throat> fell into place for me uh, very quickly. But I, I seized it, and I and I uh, flourished in the environment. It was very high pressure, but I was working for the president, and and it was a, just a crazy inexplicable sort of situation for me. But I, I, I thoroughly um, appreciated it. I was grateful and I put my head down and I worked. I worked hard. Um, I raised my family. I became more and more engaged in the community. Um, and then and my, and my career flourished. I, I moved more away from the corporate side into or the political side into the corporate side of market research. And so I was working for clients internationally. I worked for Microsoft and our, and our, our company specialized in like crisis management. So our clients were the ones that had problems, which explained why I was working for Clinton because he had this reelection question, but he had Monica Lewinsky and he had, you know, it was like, yo, like, are we going to, you know, and he was like, hey, I got a PR problem. You know, I got caught in the White House, uh, <laughs> you know, having an affair. And I got this, you know, the Vince Foster. I don't know if people remember the Vince Foster sort of murder mystery that he was connected to his wife and some lawyer friend that had disappeared. It was so it was all of these PR issues that he had and he was trying to become president again. And so, you know, our our company became sort of this company where our clients uh, were the ones that had problems and they came to us to solve them. And we had employed these different methodologies that worked and and hell, it worked for the president because we reelected Clinton. Uh, it worked for Microsoft that had that big antitrust issue that they were fighting. It worked for McDonald's that had started having international issues. Um, and those were my clients. And so I, I, I worked really, really, really hard. Um, so this is the end of the 90s. And then, um, you know, the new decade happened and a year into the decade, 9-11 uh, hit. And so that affected me because this was my faith that was really under scrutiny and, and under fire and Muslims were feared and there were people and we were the target of a lot of anger um, and distrust. And here I was, it was interesting because the bulk of Muslims in the world are not American. They're the American population of Muslims is, is a minority. Um, but there are many people who are migrants here and immigrants who, um, you know, second, third generation Muslims who are still connected um, to their countries and cultures overseas. And I was very, very American. I had the very, very American story of being a black person who went to prison and converted to Islam. It was, you know, the typical Malcolm X archetype almost. And but on top of it, I knew how to speak well. Um, I would say, uh, you know, I was reasonably intelligent and rational in, in, in terms of what I said and how I related to people. And so it, it became almost a no brainer that I became sort of a, a, a community activist on behalf of my of my religious community. Um, I became a spokesman um, and uh, just became someone very, very involved uh, in terms of especially answering questions and putting a, a human face, ho hopefully it was a human face on a religion that people thought was just full of boogeymen. And, and so uh, I became a, a larger community activist up because up to a point I was just satisfied with, Hey, I'm, 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 I'm on parole. I'm in the halfway house. I'm trying to get home. I'm trying to raise my babies and, and take care of my wife and that, and, 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 and stay out of prison. And so, but then it became, you know, I'm doing speeches and I'm lecturing at different colleges and um, just, you know, being, you know, kind of out there in the, in the public. And that became my life. Uh, I balance, I tried to balance uh, community activism and political activism and my, my ties to national politics. I ended up um, leaving the firm that I started with going in with partners, colleagues from that firm, and we started our own business and took on this funny name dude from Chicago as a client. And um, I remember my, 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 my then boss and colleague asked me, you know, hey, if this guy, if this guy named Barack Obama runs for president, what do you think? And I was, <laughs> I was like, yeah, he, he, we should not take him as a client. He's not going to win. 
uh, because America is not ready for a black president. Uh, I still remember Jesse Jackson and some of the goofballs that were black that had run uh, for president. And I was like, yeah, we this is not going to happen. Plus, he, you know, people are going to think he's Muslim anyway. Remember, we still, you know, we were still in the aftermath of 9-11. And it was it was funny because my 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 friend, my mentor, my boss and colleague, he, he's Jewish. He's a white Jewish guy. And he was like, I don't know, Taj, I, I think this guy will win. And I looked at him and I was like, man, this white Jewish dude <laughs> thinks this guy with a Muslim name is going to win. He might have something, you know, because we were cocky. Yeah, you know, we had, you know, I had I had worked for a president who should not have been reelected, to be quite honest, in terms of his PR. I had worked for firms who um, really should have just crumbled into dust and, and we saved them. And so it gave me some cockiness. And I said, well, OK, then if anybody can put something together for this guy, it's going to be us. So we took on Barack as a as a client. I managed I was the the operations manager for his his polling. And um, man, if you, you know, <laughs> if you if you couldn't believe it, this dude became president and it just became another sort of um, feather in my hat professionally. Um, but also, again, in terms of me figuring out what do I want to do with life and what was I going to do career wise. And, and and so it was just this balance um, in terms of what I was doing, um, both professionally, but also as a family man um, and, and also in my community. And, and it just seemed like the sky was the limit for me. Um, I ended up, you know, I had some changes in my life. I ended up getting divorced. Um, I was married for about 15 years. Uh, and you know, my, my ex-wife and I, we just kind of grew apart really. And I, and I, and also I was growing in different ways because when I got out of prison, I was just this young man who was still like pretty much a kid. I mean, I, I grew up in prison, which really means you didn't grow up at all. Um, and I, but I had to take on some real grown responsibilities cause I was a husband and I was um, a father and I was trying to live this pious um, life and I was a community activist and I had people that relied on me and it was it was a lot of pressure and I, I, I think I managed it OK, um, but it also meant that I, my experience in life was growing and I just, you know, the, the unfortunate sort of consequence of that was my my marriage suffered um, we both sort of started growing in different directions. And, and so, um, I, I divorced my wife and, and I ended up getting remarried very quickly. Um, but in a nutshell, I made the wrong choice and I married a woman who, um, was dealing with some of her own demons and, uh, anger and, um, trauma and that doesn't mix well with someone who is doing the same thing because I, I was also doing that as well I just did a great job of managing it and making it look good but I was still um, you know prison prison sticks with you even when you get out um, the violence the trauma um, the everyday fear which goes hand in hand with just life as a young black man and a gang member and a hoodlum anyway. And so I was managing all of those things uh, mentally and spiritually. And um, in a lot of ways, I was I was struggling in ways that I didn't uh, share. And uh, I didn't share it with my wife, of course. And and um, and then I just carried it into my next marriage. And then I, I married this woman who was absolutely uh, problem, you know, having her own mental issues and, and it was just not a good mix. Um, and before I, you know, we were married a couple of years and at the end of the two year period, uh, I was on my way back to prison. Uh, inexplicably, I, I ended up having a domestic violence case that was full of really just false accusations from my ex-wife. Um, and it really just started with me trying to make the decision to just leave my marriage. And that, that didn't go well with someone who had abandonment issues and, and, and was pretty angry. And it turned into false accusations that um, got worse because I kept making the decision to stay. <laughs> and, 
And because I had to question, you know, am I am I doing the right thing as a man, as a husband? Am I taking care of my my wife and am I taking care of my family by leaving her? And I and and, and also, to be honest, I was absolutely in love. And, and, and my wife was at the time she was this beautiful, intelligent, creative, talented person. And so I wasn't um, I didn't want to leave that. Um, I wasn't I wasn't so sure about myself as an individual that I was going to leave that. And I was still very attached um, to my wife. And so at, at the points where and I think, you know, I, as I studied uh, and, and dealt with people who have the same sort of trauma and especially women um, who have um, violent domestic abusive situations. And there's always a question of why didn't they leave? And there's all kinds of different answers to that. But I, I had to ask that question myself, like, why didn't I leave? And, and, and my, and my staying led to the situation getting worse and the accusations never really going away. And they got worse. And before I knew it, uh, I, I was on my way to prison. I lost my career and, um, lost, um, really, the the responsibilities and lost a lot of my own dignity and um I I struggled mightily I, I was before I knew it I was in DRDC the diagnostic reception prison that you start off at before they assign you a regular prison wondering what the hell happened and how did it all go away um, my house was gone my my cars were gone my career was gone. And um, I, I didn't have much left except, to be honest, just my faith. And even that was something I struggled with. But, I, you know, there's a part of me that's very, very stubborn. I, I, th- I think I learned it in prison <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and maybe just some of it in my DNA, maybe handed down from my ancestors. Um, so I held on to that um, stubbornly. I wasn't going to give that up completely. And I think it saved me in a lot of ways. Um, I, beca- I became more introspective because I did wonder what the hell happened and how did it all sort of crumble away. And I, I began really asking myself those questions. And, and the answers always seemed to lie in, in the mirror. And so I had to really look in the mirror and, and, and put my hand in some things that I was not uh, always comfortable with. And I had to ask some some real honest questions that are not always easy to ask and probably even harder to answer. Um, but I, but my faith really was the thing that guided me the most. And interestingly enough, I, so on my way back to prison, so this is, you know, time wise, this is like 2013. So, you know, from 96 to 2013, I was, you know, had moved away from prison and tried to build a life. And then all of a sudden it was gone and I was right back in prison. And the second chance center started, uh, in 2012. So I was a year into my sentence and I was hearing all these stories from people about the Second Chance Center. And this was this new service organization that was going to help people get out of prison. And it was started by people who had been to prison themselves. And the interesting thing for me personally was I knew these people. <laughs> um, and so the founder of the Second Chance Center was a long time friend and mentor of mine from when I went to prison the first time. He was largely responsible for me learning about Islam when I began um, back in, you know, 1993, when I began wondering about the religion. I had spent a lot of time with him and my little brother, Sean uh, Taylor, and who had converted to Islam. And so his conversion was interesting to me. And I gravitated towards him and the religion, and then uh, Hassan was his mentor, and so Hassan became my mentor. Um, and I, my conversion to Islam was so quick and easy that I, I, I studied the faith um, vociferously. I read, I learned Arabic very enough to read the Quran and translate it. On my own. So I've always been like a self, like autodidactic, what they call autodidactic. So I was always self-taught. My mom instilled that in me because she was a teacher. And um, so I took to the religion very quickly and I and it just answered so many philosophical questions for me. And it was just like I just I just soaked into it. And Hassan was really largely 
responsible for that because he became somebody who was a, 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 a model for me of what Islam looked like in a person. Uh, because up to then, all I, all I had was what I saw on TV, maybe about people that I read in the book, um, but I didn't have really real-life examples. There were Muslims in prison, uh, but many of them, until they met Hassan, to be quite honest, weren't necessarily as faithful to the religion um, or even learned. And so I didn't, I can't say I really picked up the religion from a person until I really met Hassan. And and the, and also, I his, um, his example and mentorship changed so many people's lives um, in ways that uh, I, I don't know that even he could appreciate or even realize, even to this day, um, including mine. And so just just from his example. Uh, and so so fast forward to 2013, you know, years, you know, 20 years later uh, or over 20 years later, you know, here's this. I'm hearing this talk about Second Chance Center in prison and talk about Hassan and and um, and Sean, who had also done prison time. We were both to, all three of us were in prison together in the 90s. And um I was like, man, that's those, those are my people. That's my family, and and that's my mentor, and and so I began, and and here I am in prison. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm back in prison, and I was like, man, I, I was supposed to be with them. I was supposed to, I was supposed to be there on day one when they opened the office because that those are my peoples, and it, it was interesting because it I had to really do a lot of thinking and even more introspection. Uh, because I realized I had gotten out of prison, I had turned my life around, but the piece that was missing was I really didn't do a lot in terms of working in reentry or helping people transition out of prison. I had done some work, um, and and what was it was ironic because I had started a program for Muslims who had gotten out of prison, and it was in in the resource guide that was in in jail. So my name was in it, and people would come up to me and say, "Hey, is this your name in this in this resource guide?" And I would just be embarrassed, like, "Yeah," but here I am, <laughs> here I am in prison, <laughs> you know, with with the resource guide with my name in it, uh, and so I. I I was like, man, you know, if I could, if I could go back, uh, that would be the part that really stuck out for me is I, I should have done more um, to help people transition in the way that I was because I had really achieved some, you know, modicum of success and 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 as a former convict, you know, and I but I had not done anything in the realm of of really helping people. Um, achieve that success. I, I thought I did, but I think it was just more, that's just more me being uh, either arrogant or just ignorant, maybe both. Um, I, I had worked, like I said, as a, I worked in the county jail as a volunteer chaplain doing Islamic services. And so I thought I was doing my part to, you know, help people learn the religion and especially in that environment. And I, I hired, you know, my job was glorified, you know, while I did a lot of market research and I worked for the president, the lifeblood of my job was still the call center. And so my friend and I, we hired people uh, and I specifically targeted people that were on parole and, and needed the job because it was a requirement. And so I thought I was doing my part. And it was funny because I hired so many people that even to this day still, you know, when I go back to prison, they're like, "Hey, man, you were my boss, <laughs> you know, back in the day." Um, but but it wasn't it wasn't impactful, and I, and it didn't, you know, those efforts really didn't um, stand out for me, and they weren't fulfilling to me personally. So I really was just going through the motions. And so when I was in prison, hearing about Second Chance, it really um, it made me really think hard about maybe doing some work in reentry would be in my future. Um, and 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 I would rejoin my family when I got out. And and so when I so I, I went to prison on a four year sentence, um, mostly because I didn't I, I took a deal, to be honest, I was innocent and I was going to fight my case up until the point. My daughter was like, I need you to come home. And so I took a plea deal. Um, I wasn't remorseful in court and the judge didn't appreciate it. So he gave me a prison sentence. Uh, even though I was supposed to get probation. So I, I went to prison on a four-year sentence. 
and I was absolutely unremorseful there and I didn't make parole uh, and I served three years of that four year sentence. But when I got out, the first place I went to was the Second Chance Center. Um, because not because I necessarily needed the services, but I did need to reconnect uh, with people that I felt like had made the right decision in terms of um, taking their life and their experience and doing something meaningful with it. And, that, and so it sort of answered what I wanted to do. And so I, I went I went to the Second Chance Center and I just hung out. I, I ended up getting a, you know, kind of a regular day job. But anytime I could, I was I was at the center hanging out with Hassan and Sean and Adam. And, um, you know, just being kind of a thorn in their side, really. They were probably annoyed that I was there all the time. They, w- they probably wouldn't say that. Or maybe they would. Who knows? But uh, <laughs> but um, I, I just knew that. I needed to soak up the idea of what I, what what I was going to do in my life in the future, and that in some way, shape, or form, being around in that environment would at least help me answer those questions and help me put my own life back together. Because I, I needed to do that as well. I got out of prison. I didn't. I, I had absolutely no family support because again, my family. I divorced my. I didn't have a wife, and my child was a child. You know, she was still a kid. There was not much she could do. And all I had really was my was my faith and just, you know, trying to make better decisions and get back to where I thought, uh, you know, I should be. Uh, and so, I, you know, I found work um, and, and, and my spare time was hanging out at Second Chance. And that uh, ended up becoming turning into a job offer. Um, the uh, exe- one of the deputy direct Sean, uh, the co-founder and deputy director, offered me a job. And Hassan sat me down and he had this master plan about um, a relationship between Second Chance Center and the Department of Corrections and moving into case management and becoming more of a presence in prison, uh, taking the mission of Second Chance and refining it. And I was all about it. And uh, I ended up working as a care manager initially with the goal of becoming a programs manager um, within the Department of Corrections. And for the last four years, that's what that that's where the growth in my in my work has been. Um, I went from being a case manager to now a programs manager. I um, work uh, primarily to in, in facilities now. So I'm running all through the state and I work in prison and the Department of Corrections had a director who um, was progressive minded enough to even think of this crazy idea to give security clearance to a person who was in prison at one point And he did that. I have a badge <laughs> from the Department of Corrections that allows me to walk into any facility. And it's 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 crazy. But I, I take the mission of Second Chance Center, which is helping people transition uh, to a life of success and to a life of fulfillment. And I take that mission and I and I. I, I, ha- I had the idea because, you know, Hassan wrote this book in conjunction to starting the Second Chance Center called Never Going Back. And it's a book that he outlines these steps and philosophies that he put out there. Not, that only not only helped himself when he came home from prison because he served 18 years um, and he had to figure out his own life and, and, and deal with recovery and his own substance abuse and his addiction, which I think was easy for him to ignore because he became a mentor and a leader. And sometimes you become, even if you don't want to be, you become elevated and put on a pedestal in ways that makes you blind to your own flaws and your own weaknesses. And you don't, your, your, your leadership ends up becoming uh, consuming and you don't get a chance to be introspective Um but he did, though, interestingly enough, by I mean, because he had like a long sentence. He had over 50 years, but he had this beautiful wife who's who's, who's my big sister and he wanted to come home. Uh, and so he made the decision to become involved in the drug program in, in prison that was light at the end of the tunnel for him. And he delved into that program, which the program itself it's designed to break you down in ways that are uncomfortable and scary. 
And, you know, I think Hassan for a long time avoided even that notion. But um, he's also honest and, and stubborn, and he did it, and it ripped him apart. Um, but it also benefited him. And it gave him a chance to come home, and he came home, and he started this program um, where he took a lot of the things that he learned himself, uh, took some very tried and tested um, methodologies, and he congealed it in a book and in seven steps. And we took those seven steps, and I and I took those seven steps um, that didn't uh, that in a lot of ways applied to me as well as I tried to figure out my own life. And I thought, you know, we this the, this philosophy and this approach works very well for people getting out of prison. And it does. Uh, we have um, a ridiculously low recidivism rate in terms of the participants in our program. And I thought, man, if 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 it works here when people are on parole and probation, could we start it in prison before a person gets out? Could we start that thought process? And so I took um, I took Hassan's philosophies and I rewrote them in a curriculum that that I based on let's let's take never going back but start it before someone gets out and he signed off on it <laughs> and um, uh, in conjunction with some of the movement of DOC itself um, I got the security clearance and now I spend my time trying to teach those ideas out of this curriculum and take Hassan's philosophies and the work that we do and begin it in prison. Uh, along the way, I became a state commissioner on uh, on the governor's commission for criminal and juvenile justice. Uh, I still don't know how the hell that happened, uh, <laughs> but um, I, yeah, I think it was just another um, instance where someone – uh, thought more of me than maybe I thought of myself, gave me a chance, and I and I was able to seize it and and take that opportunity. And so I do my best to um, take my lived experience and the voice of people that are never really in the rooms that set policies and write laws, and and try to give a different perspective. And I and I think somebody saw some value in that. And so. Uh, and certainly the governor did when they when they called me saying, um, you know, when he, he called me saying he was appointing me as a commissioner, I, I thought that was a joke. Um, uh, <laughs> and the, the phone call was really interesting because I didn't I didn't know who it was. And so I kind of it was a, a call that came through. I didn't recognize and I'm not really polite on those type of calls. <laughs> so, <laughs> but they were like, oh, I'm calling from the governor's office. I was like, yeah, right. Anyway. And then when I realized, I was like, ooh, <laughs> like, let me like, let me back up. Uh, <laughs> it's an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much. Uh, but, you know, uh, so I, I'm a commissioner and then the, and then it got repeated by the mayor. Uh, so I, I'm also a commissioner on the mayor's commission for um, cr- criminal crime prevention and control, which, again, is just so weird to me because now, uh, you know, Hassan one day told me, hey, you know, we're crime fighters. And I was like, man, get out of here with that. <laughs> that don't even make sense to me. But I had to think about it in a lot of ways. You know, we, we do. We are that because we encourage our people to leave off the, the types of behaviors and decisions that led them into prison. And, and, and a lot of it meant in terms of how do we do that? It meant, it means partnering with people in our community that have the same ideas. Um, and so that, you know, so, so we cross paths with Tomas because that that's part of what our mission was. Um, we opened up, we were lucky to open up an office in Denver um, to deal with the jail population and smart enough to realize we can't serve everybody and do everything for everyone else. But there are there are organizations out there that do. And so Tribe Recovery um, serves that need for people to have sober living, first of all, but also their, their journey in recovery. They need support uh, and they need organizations and they need people who know what the hell they're doing. And when we opened up the Denver office, for sure, we were like, yeah, like we if we're going to because we didn't we don't you know, at the time we didn't do anything in terms of the jail population. Our our wheelhouse was prison. Um, but we also knew that if we take the approach towards recidivism that we do with people on parole, we could do it with people on probation. We can do it with people that are, you know, getting drug crimes. 
but it also meant we have to have some expertise. I, I, I'll tell you in a minute, I don't know anything about recovery and addiction because uh, it hasn't been my lived experience. I can do all the training I want to, but I don't have that expertise. But uh, I know some people that do, and I'm, <laughs> and I'm humble enough to say, hey, uh, we need your help. And so um, Tribe Recovery has been integral for us um, overall, not just for the Denver office and what we do in, in terms of jail um, populace and, and, and incarceration and recidivism, but just in terms of um, the idea of community um, and being successful. Um, because if we if we treat our people like we want to treat them, and that's really like a family, then we have to have a community perspective. And it's not just we're not just an organization, and we're not just people um, who who went to prison. Uh, we're part of a, of a community that we have to take responsibility for, that we want to hold accountable in terms of its leadership and its politicians, but also we have to participate fully, and that means. Um, partnering with people that are also part of the community um, and tapping into the things that they offer. And so, so that's what I do. <laughs> that, that's what I do these days um, w- w- with, you know, with that. Uh, and, and I try to, you know, now though, I'm like more, you know, I'm getting older now, you know, I just turned 53 Um and I'm, I'm still a father. My, my, my baby back in the day, she was a baby. She's 25 now. And she's got a, she's about like, like any day, Tomas, I should be getting the call that my grandbaby's born. But she's whole, you know, she's Ashahi, so she's stubborn. <laughs> she, her due date, it was the 31st, bro. And, you know, we'll probably go into March and she'll still be hanging on. But, um, but I, so I think more about community. I think more about family. I think more about legacy. And so I try to, my own life, uh, in, in terms of what I do, I, I'm, I'm more mindful of, of those types of things, both my past, but also especially now my future, because I have a two year old, too. Um, so, I, you know, I wasn't done, obviously, having babies. Uh, and so um, I got this beautiful boy. Um, that superstar. I'm, he really is, man. He's got his own following. And <laughs> and, um, and uh, you know, the and and and, and, and I put it. You know, to be honest, I put them, you know, I talk about community, but I think sometimes like these days I'm more about I got to live what I talk about, you know. And so if I talk about the importance of community, I think I have to make it important in terms of how I live. So my boy, like I, you know, I when he was born, I had him all on Facebook and he has his own little Instagram account. And but I do it because I want him to be. I want him to have what I didn't have when I was his age, and that was a sense of community and a sense of belonging. Because no, no matter, I was always a loner, and I never felt like I belonged anywhere. And prison teaches you that you don't belong anywhere but prison. Um, and people are not encouraged to be in the community when they get out of jail or prison. They're just encouraged to go back and stay away. And so, it, that's so important to me that. I have to I have to live it. It has to be real for me. And and my kid is a great example of that. And so he's out there and people know him because I want the I want him to have a sense of community um, so that as he grows up, um, he he can feel a part of it, but also take responsibility in its growth, um, feel empowered to do the things that will um, build bridges and and heal as opposed to what I did and, and when I was younger and and, and caused a lot of damage, um, and so my life is is a, is more about him um, and about the legacy. I, I don't know what that legacy would be. I, I think it would probably be just more about resilience because I, I survived prison. I survived a ridiculous childhood. I survived the trauma and abuse of that childhood and um, and and prison and jail. And even, you know, recently, I um, two years, three years ago now, I guess, uh, I mean, it seems like yesterday, but I was shot five times and um, shot in the face. And I, I, I've had to deal with like nerve paralysis. The left side of my body has no feeling. And I got a shattered elbow that's all metal. And, and I should not be alive, uh, to be quite honest. Um, and I don't know what allowed me to survive that except clearly I got some stuff still to do um, 
my my kid was my 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 baby's mother was pregnant at the time, so my kid wasn't even born. He was born two months to the day that I got shot, and so I think a lot of that answers in terms of what it is that I'm here for. But my work in terms of what I leave behind, in terms of trying to heal a community that in so many ways um, is 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 hurt and fractured, and still trying to um, uh, recover. You know, in in so many different ways and aspects, and I feel like it's 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 part of my duty and 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 responsibility to do what I can um, to foster that healing. And so it's you know it's it's a lot of the work that we do, we both do at Tribe and at Second Chance, and I hope um, lays the foundation for that. And then you know, when my boy grows up, hopefully he'll make a decision to do the same and, and carry on the same sort of mission. And if not, he'll become a scientist or, you know, make some, a lot of money doing something. Uh, <laughs> Cause ain't no money in this, you know, there, there's no money in, in, in working for the people, but, it's, but there is certainly fulfillment and purpose, um, which is something that we, we, I think we both try to give our people in terms Absolutely. of, in terms of um, what we want them to achieve as they, as they recover and, and put their lives back together. So um, that's my story and I'm going to stick to it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. Taj Ashahid is our guest this morning. You know, I learned a lot from you this morning, but um, one thing I did learn also was you don't have to have a story about addiction to have a story that can help someone in their recovery, whether that recovery is from substance abuse or it's reentry from yeah. the system. Yeah. And, um, so I, I definitely feel that what you had to say without a story of addiction is there to help so many people. And I, I do know that if somebody's listening and they have a family member who is in, incarcerated or maybe they just recently got out and they're hearing this, you know, I think you gave them some hope for the future. I hope so. I, it, you, and a pathway. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of, I work with a lot of people that do struggle with addiction I've I've had family members, uh, you know, my my beautiful sister-in-law passed away because of of her addiction. Uh, she committed suicide because of a really of a relapse. Um, so I've I've had it affect me personally, but I I deal with people who are on the journey of recovery, and so what we can do as second chance to help people, we will do. Whether we have experience in it or not, I know I do. I don't have the experience, but I mm-hmm. definitely have the desire to 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 push people along that road. Um, and I'm fortunate to work with people like Tomas and Tribe Recovery who have the experience and the expertise. And so I'll run to them in a minute. <laughs> so if somebody just got out of the system, can they just reach out to Second Chance? Absolutely. They can find, they can walk through the door. Um, they can they can walk through the door, honestly. They can find this on our website. You can Google. I mean, we've had people find us just by Googling Second Chance. To be right. honest, so yeah, absolutely. And there's no restrictions on that. None. Uh, you don't have to have a background of incarceration. You don't have to be justice involved. Just walk through our doors, and we're there to help. Absolutely. What's the phone number? Beyond, you know, they can Google Second Chance, but what's the phone number? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give my direct number okay. because that that really is the best way to reach me, and it's my cell phone, so I can decide who to answer. <laughs> but you can reach me. I'm I'm a programs manager there. It's seven two zero. Four nine two nine seven three four. So again, seven two zero four ninety two ninety seven thirty four. You can reach me direct. Taj, I want to thank you so much for being here with us this morning. Really appreciate you. And uh, I learned about the Second Chance Center, which is something I did not know about. And I have a friend who's going to be getting out of prison soon. And I want to—he's he's in California, but I want to tell him because I'm sure there's an organization Absolutely. quite similar in California. Yep. And I'm telling them, tell first of all, to listen to we'll, this. We'll connect them listen if we to have to. This. Yeah. Listen to this. Tyrone, I'm talking to you. All right. Listen to this. We're waiting on you, Tyrone. Come yeah. on. And then, uh, and, you know, and then, and then find the same kind of, the same kind of organization to help you with your reentry, man. Absolutely. Uh, Taj, man, thank you so much for coming in. Bro, it's my pleasure. Thank you for Thanks even for thinking of do. me. Yeah. Oh, thank come you on, for now. having me, bro. Yeah. And this man right here. You know, he just knows all the best. He's guests. the man, gotta, bro. Like Tomas is the dude, Tomas man. I'm, like, I'm trying to be like him when I grow up. Oh, man. please. Like, real, y'all, y'all in the same circle. <laughs> man, same circle. My wife's going to be laughing by the time she hears this. She's like, man, don't be like him. Don't be like him. <laughs>
Oh, Ma, hi, this is Sharon, our stories, and we're here on your radio each Sunday at 7 a.m. And if you just tuned into this program, you want to hear it from the be- from the beginning and hear what Taj had to say this morning, please go to our websites. It's on uh, jammin1015.com. You can also find it at flowdenver.com. This program is brought to you in part by the wonderful people at Tribe Recovery Homes who want to help folks find a pathway to their recovery. And you can find them at triberecoveryhomes.org or .com, triberecoveryhomes.com, or give them a phone call at 720-60-TRIBE. And we're just here to help you, Mahai. So please feel free to reach out. The Second Chance Center, Taj would love to hear from you, Tribe Recovery Homes. Uh, If you're looking for a pathway to recovery or to re-entry from exiting the system, well, let us know and we'll find people to help you out. Uh, Join us again next Sunday right here on your radio for sharing our stories. Once again, our guest this morning, Taj Ashahid. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Maha, have a wonderful Sunday and we'll see you next week.